get started. Good evening, church. Greetings. So we're going to start off tonight a little different with a poll. Well, the, the message tonight is, uh, is entitled Marriage, a Redeemed Cosmological Institution. Uh, but really, we're, we're going to be talking about the spiritual significance of the gender-specific commands that are found primarily in Ephesians 5, but we're going to be looking, we're going to bounce around as is our custom, and we'll also be in Genesis. But I wanted to ask you, start off by asking is how many of you, and you can wait to hold, hold up your hand until we're done, but how many of you are either married, you are seeking to be married, you have been married, or you know somebody that's married? <laughs> raise your hand. <laughs> okay. All right. For the one that didn't raise their hand, see me after. So obviously, everybody has a thought about marriage. Everybody has presuppositions about marriage or things that have influenced their thoughts about marriage or what marriage is supposed to be. And uh, we've been talking about how this pro-homosexual and transgender movement that's sweeping the Western world is rooted in the railing against the distinctions of God that God has created. And God's distinctions we've been talking about are designed to bring himself glory. And so the Christian's task is to be about the business of recognizing the distinctions that God has made. That is our business, that's our lifelong business. So tonight, we're going to talk about the most fundamental of all distinctions within the creation, and that is the distinction of male and female, and particularly as it relates to marriage. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for our blessing. Father in heaven, we come before you and we exalt your holy name. You are to be honored, you are to be revered, and you have made yourself known to us in the creation and in your written, written infallible word. We want to honor both your creation and your word and your person by honoring the distinctions that you have made. So we need your help. There's so much at stake, as we're going to find out tonight, and I just pray that you would align our thoughts to your word, align our attitudes, our motives, everything that we are to your word. Maybe be a God-centered and word-centered people, and may you get all the credit. Thank you again for your son, Jesus, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. So we talked about in the first couple of sessions, if you remember way back when we started, how this anti-genderism has been making a concerted effort 
to flatten out the genders in the name of this sort of quasi-equality. And so this is a push, of course, for an omni-gendered utopian society where there is no gender distinctions. That's what the press is for. But we need to understand what exactly is at stake in the issue. The threat to the freedoms that we enjoy of religion and the integrity of the family and all this, well, it pales in comparison to how this pro-sexual perversion will negatively impact the message of redemption. In case you missed that, let me say it again. The threat to the freedoms we enjoy of religion and the integrity of the family, it pales in comparison to this pro-sexual pro, uh, pro perversion, this, this uh, anarchy in sexuality, and how it negatively impacts the message of redemption. And so really that's kind of the task before us tonight, is explaining that, unpacking that. How is that? Well, the patriarchal authority of God the Father is central in redemption. Transgenderism is not solely a push for redefining sexual and gender boundaries, but it also is the rejection of male and female as the image of God. It is also a philosophy about destroying male patriarchy, male headship. And this perversion deliberately strikes at the heart of the gospel because propitiation is accomplished in a Trinitarian manner. What do I mean by that? Well, in redemption, God sends the Son. The Son procures that redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies that redemption. So this is what is known as the covenant of redemption, or agreement of redemption. So, the purpose of marriage, the Bible sets forth a few purposes for marriage. One is procreation, one is companionship, and the other is redemption, and included in redemption is sanctification. Those are the three central purposes for marriage. So in God's word, the story of redemption begins within the context of gender. Genesis 3.15, you can flip over there, we're going to kind of bop around there. Genesis 3.15, you know it well. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is what I want us to see here. Don't miss this. The fruit of the womb is the product of two becoming one flesh. So from this marriage, the first marriage, right, of Adam and Eve, will come a male child that will be your ruin, God tells the snake, right, the serpent. This coming male child is going to be your ruin. The fruit of the, the womb of the first marriage is going to destroy the serpent. The devil hates marriage. He's against marriage. He's after marriage. He 
is doing everything he can to pervert it, to conceal it, to hide it, to hide its purpose. So also consider the formation of Adam's bride. Let's look over, just flip over to, to uh, the previous chapter in chapter 2. You see God, our, uh, Adam naming all of these distinctions in the creation, right, in the animals. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field, verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So actually, it's very emphatic that the picture is, is that Adam says, finally, finally, Lord, there's a helper fit for me. So he, he's just overjoyed. You know, he's been going through naming the animals and he sees, you know, they have this corresponding sex for each animal and he is recognizing as he's doing this that there's, there's no one fit for him. And so the Lord creates woman from the side of Adam. So consider the formation of Adam's bride. Eve's creation account prefigures Christ forming his bride, the church. So how so? Well, Adam underwent a deep death-like sleep in order that he might give the flesh of his side, right, his rib, for the creation of his bride's life. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So also Christ gives his flesh to raise the church to life. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6, 51. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her splendor, all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, church, marriage is very precious to God. Gender is very near and dear to God. Marriage plays an important role in the mystery of redemption. Marriage provides a real-life portrait that makes God known savingly to believing sinners. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, he goes on to say in 532, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. So this mystery is very deep. 
So the glorious redemptive love described in Ephesians chapter 5 is made possible only because of the distinctions in God's creation of his image bearers, male and female. Flip over to Ephesians 5 for me. Keeping that Genesis 2 text in mind. Now you know this text very well. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. So the glorious redemptive love that's described in Ephesians chapter 5 is made possible only because of the distinctions in God's creation with his image bearers being male and female. Christ's substitutionary death is the sphere with which our spiritual resurrection takes place. Believers are crucified with him, right? We have co-crucifixion, we have co-burial, co-vivification, we have co-resurrection, co-glorification. We are one in Christ, as Larry's been, was working through a couple of weeks ago, our union with Christ is multifaceted. And it's at the centerpiece of what we're talking about here. So as the husband dies to himself in the covenant of marriage, washes his wife in the word, protects her, cares for her, nourishes her sacrificially, he provides a picture of this propitiatory love and mysterious union that gives marriage a cosmic purpose in revealing the mystery of redemption. It's a picture, you see? So the covenant of marriage is designed to reflect this covenant of redemption that we mentioned. And likewise, as the wife submits her will to the will of her husband, she plays her role in demonstrating to a watching world how the church submits to her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, redemption is complementary. And so marriage is complementary. And this is all about the fittedness of one for the other. Don't, don't squirm, English teachers. It's the fittedness. Christ in the church, man and woman, union is only possible because of the fittedness of one for the other. You see? This is about distinctions fitting together. 
So let's look at that for just a moment. Think about how much of our affections for Christ turn upon his perfect fittedness to recover, to rescue, to raise his bride who is dead in her sinful corruptions. And we love the way that Christ saves, don't we? Right? As much as the devil hates the way that Christ saves, we love the way that Christ saves. And so much of our genuine Christian sanctification involves exalting Christ by continually matching his perfections to every aspect of our ruin. Like the first marriage, we, as we read in Genesis 3.15 in the seed, the gender distinctions of male and female in the covenant of marriage provide a context for understanding the gospel. And that's what we want to grasp. We as believers are to always be about the business of matching the dimensions of Christ's saviorhood with our sinnership. His work of redemption with our ruin. Consider Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, right, of the Aaronic priesthood, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he, excuse me, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Christ is the perfect man for the perfect sinner. Amen? The greatest love story in time or eternity is unfolding in redemptive history. God the Father has chosen a bride for his son. In eternity past, before the creation of the universe, there was an agreement among the members of the Godhead. By the way, you can read about this in John 17, Ephesians 1. The Son of God will be given a people without number from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. These individuals will be formed into a new humanity, fit to be wed or wedded to God. And it might help us if we sort of put this, if we could take a little liberty and put it into a conversation between the Father and the Son in eternity. We could say it like this. My son, there will be a problem. Your bride, well, she's going to hate you. She will be dead in sin and corruption. And the only way for you to win and woo and redeem her is to become the last man. In so doing, you will take on her legal guilt, her death and separation and deserved wrath. This will be a guilt and penalty transfer. You will have to go so low as to be tormented and killed, even killed on a Roman cross. You will go so low as to become a human corpse carried to a stone tomb by sinners. But your death will be her life. You will grant her a new heart, and thereby you will draw out her redemptive love for you. You will be able to say to her, you are bone of my bone, and you are flesh of my flesh. For mystery of mysteries, the church was taken out of the side of Christ. And this is why gender matters so much to God. 
It is central in God's story of divine redemption. The church, she is in for tough times ahead, as we've been talking about. There's going to be continued pressure upon believers. Uh, it will increase as this gender and sexual anarchy continues to steamroll and gain traction. And uh, it's going to be, unfortunately, it looks like it may be completely normative in the culture and the church. Liberalism, churches are defecting on this very issue. They've been doing it for a long time and they continue to do it. And they've taken a very egalitarian stand. Egalitarian essentially means that there is no distinctions. There's, there is no created distinctions. The men and women are essentially alike. And that through roles that they play and, and these kinds of things in the home and in the church, well, this is a function of, of uh, simply giftedness or talents. And it's not rooted in the actual creative distinctions that God has made. That is, a, that is what is being adopted by churches every single day, more and more. So with this Genesis 3.15 tucked in our minds, the fruit of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent is the product of holy matrimony. So in like manner, in a God-fearing society, traditional marriage is ordered for the welfare of the child to raise up spiritual offspring, little arrows. But under today's new morality, marriage is oriented to the emotional bond of the couple. You see, that's how the devil is able to sneak his homosexual agenda in. This legislation from the serpent allows for the perversion of same-sex marriage, but same-sex marriage is not private. It's not merely private. It was sold to us as a, as a private thing, but it's not. For it devalues traditional marriage because the only way to enshrine same-sex marriage is by changing the meaning of marriage. The legitimization of homosexual marriage means the delegitimization of traditional marriage. And the nuclear family and the rest goes, goes down the line. All the, the building blocks of society start to fall apart. So persecution is coming, and as one shepherd warns, quote, the real church, those united to Christ who are ruled by his infallible word, will be marginalized as an impediment to the progress of society, unquote. We need to understand that marriage is a glimpse of how God unites himself to the elect. It's a glimpse. It's a picture. So the gender-specific commands that we read about in Ephesians 5, this is where the church comes in. This is where the church comes in. The manner in which Christian marriage typify, typifies Christ's relationship with his church is multifaceted. It's very complex. Paul describes it as a mystery. It's a mystery that we cannot exhaust in this life. So consider for a moment the depth of the mystery. Our creator became a man in order to redeem a portion of sinful mankind that this portion might become his eternal bride. And our Lord thus is forever joined to our nature. He has taken on a body of dust that he might be glorified in that body and thereby glorify his human bride. So divine nature is forever wedded 
to human nature in the person of Christ, that redeemed humans might forever be united to God and glorified in their head. This is what it means to go from dust to glory. So the greatest wedding in the cosmos is yet still future. All the elect before us prepared for it. Heaven itself is defined by this cosmic union, yet yet to come. Redeemed individuals will be seated above the angels in glory as God's eternal helpers or companions, as Christ's beloved bride. The great marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19 will inaugurate the consummation of God's purposes in salvation. We shall be raised to the honor and glory of Christ's estate by virtue of our union with him, you see. So on that day, all of the bride's corruptions will fall to the ground in an instant. She will be clothed in white and will be without spot or wrinkle. And God the Father will present her clothed in splendor and glory, spotless, made ready for her husband. She'll be given to the Son of God in a cosmic wedding ceremony to be witnessed by the holy rational universe. I would say this mystery is profound. So you see the church, you know, we, we have failed to understand this properly. God's great undertaking to redeem a portion of humanity, to make them fit to wed his son, encompasses a plan that precedes time. In eternity past, God planned our redemption and his eternal counsels. An agreement within the Godhead of the names of the elect were recorded in God's wedding registry. That happened when the father chose a bride for his son. So there is no higher earthly picture of the redemptive relationship between the Lord and his church than marriage. So this is a game changer for the church. Um, it's a game changer for how we see not just marriage, but how we see our own marriage, how we see the inner workings of our family life, how we see the inner workings of our family wife, our, our, our family life within the church and within society as well. Marriage is characterized by sacrificial love and wholehearted submission they glorify God because they reflect the perfection of love and the future glory between the Lord and his bride. So therefore, a spirit-filled marriage relationship that fulfills the redemptive commands of Ephesians 5 that presents a very powerful picture, a very peculiar and powerful picture to a watching world. The perfect model and pattern for earthly marital union is the oneness that's inherent in the Christ church relationship. You see, God officiated the very first wedding between Adam and Eve. He declared Eve to be bone of my bone, Adam said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The power and impact of a redemptive marriage relationship is contained in its ability to reflect the mystery of Christ and the church. And the devil knows this all too well. 
In our culture, marriage is trivialized into a mere social contract that exists for convenience. You can, it's like a ditch you step into, you can step into it, you can step right out, right? A pothole. It's uh, tailored to the felt needs of the individual. And our nation is increasingly becoming secularized day by day, and so we can expect that the institution of marriage will be increasingly stripped of meaning. No longer viewed as a divine institution and a divine covenant and no longer a communicator of the mystery of redemption. You see, that's the thing we want to think through, that your home, within your family, within the nuclear family between you and your wife, right? Or if you're not married, you, you, this is for everyone, okay? But that is creating a picture. You're telling a story within your own marriage. It, it's far beyond who, who we are. It's far beyond just the pragmatics of life, right? This is telling a, pic, a picture. It's telling a story. Scripture establishes the highest purpose for marriage to be far above our own desire for fulfillment. That's what the world is telling us, that it's really marriage is about you. It's about your fulfillment. It's about your happiness. And it's no longer a, a communicator of this mysterious, this mysterious connection that Paul is talking about. So only the spirit-filled, spirit-enabled believer can fulfill the marital commands of Ephesians chapter five. This is uh, Ephesians chapter five. It's not for the world. It's not for unredeemed men and women that have entered into the covenant of marriage. There is no power there to reflect the true meaning. So couples devoted to Christ and his glory embrace the vision to image Christ's relationship with his church. It is their purpose by obeying Christ in their marriage relationships to attest to the invisible supernatural reality of Christ and his church in a holy marriage. The world can see a glimpse of what this heavenly marriage will look like in your marriage. They're studying you. They're watching you. They're seeing how you respond, how you treat your spouse. So what an incredible privilege marriage is, but also what an incredible responsibility. For in order for marriages to be spiritually fruitful, they must glorify God. Obedience to the commands of Ephesians 5 is the divinely appointed means by which the partners in holy matrimony glorify God in the marriage relationship. They glorify God by showing forth the mystery of Christ in the church. And so when biblical roles are occupied and the gender-specific commands of Ephesians 5 are embraced, God is exalted. And this obedience to the marital commands bears fruit for God. You see, this is part of how we bear fruit for God. God's glory is so much better than our own. Christ's bride is made glorious by Christ's redemption and sanctification of her. So her part is to submit to him in order to be made glorious. You see, God's way is glory through submission. The husband submits to Christ and the wife submits to her husband. Jesus is the perfect demonstration of glory through submission. 
He was the perfect disciple, the perfect believer. He was the perfect son. He exhibited no will to power. He always sought first the kingdom of God. He did not love his own life even unto death, but became obedient unto death. The Father's will was his meat and drink. Through trust and obedience, he submitted perfectly to him who judges righteously. He did not love all that was in the world, but overcame the world, and he lost his life for the sake of the gospel. He laid down his life for the sake of his bride. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Hosea 2, 19 through 20. So this loving submission among equals is a splendid pattern, for it is inherent in the Godhead. A division of labor, a hierarchy of authority, and an honor among equals. This is the model for marriage. God's design for social order is built upon this truth of unity, equality, and diversity within the Godhead. And all three of those are covenantal, redemptive. It's all covenantal, redemptive language. It's no wonder the devil is able to dupe those virgins that didn't take their oil with them. Those words resonate to the core of our being. Because of his obedience to the Father in accomplishing our redemption, Christ is worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So we need to understand that the church is powerless to make herself glorious. She's powerless. She's to submit to Christ. This is how she is to be made glorious. But the devil's lie has always been about self-glorification. It's a big seller today. The world offers this narcissistic approach to importance and is demonstrated in feminism, which is the female attempt to self-glorify. And it is demonstrated in machismo, feminism's counterpoint, right? This aggressive and exaggerated chauvinistic pride. But both are utterly impotent. The path to glory is modeled by the relations within the Godhead. Glory only comes as a byproduct of submission to the glorious one. If this is true of our sinless Savior, then the question is how much more true is it of us? This is why in heaven's eyes, submission is a love word. To the world, it's an antagonistic, foul word. But to the church, submission is a love word. For submission is the surrender to God's love. It is devotion to the one who holds you in his heart. Christ's love to the Father is seen in his submission. Christ's obedience that led him to Calvary declares both his love for the Father and for the church. The Savior's heart is fixed upon the joy that he will forever experience with his glorified bride. Yes, God delights in his bride. 
When sacrificial love is joined to submission, glory is the result, and it is Christ who sets the pattern. He loves sacrificially, he redeems, he sanctifies, and he glorifies his church. So Ephesians 5, which we read, downloads for us these spiritual eternal truths and puts them in the form of gender-specific commands. So what we don't want to do is look at this as strictly as a precept. So when we're drawing from this mystery well, as it were, these redemptive truths in these verses, these commands must stay joined to the mystery. If they don't, then they will dissipate and the church will fold into either legalistic do's and don'ts or egalitarianism, a host of other problems will arise. So husband and wives who feed upon these redemptive truths of Christ in the church will find a storehouse of glory. And we're going to need a storehouse. If you're married, you need a storehouse of glory to draw from. Just as the, church, the church's submission to Christ is the means of her perfection, the wife's submission to her husband is central to her sanctification as a married believer. So also the husband is given gender-specific commands as well. Sacrificial love for his wife, he must commit himself to the obedience of the commands that Christ has given him in order for his sanctification to be continued unhindered. So as true disciples of Christ, both husband and wife are commanded to die to self. And in the marriage relationship, what does that look like? Well, the husband dies to himself by sacrificing himself for his wife as Christ did for the church. And the wife dies to self by sacrificing her will in obedience to her husband, just as the church does in obedience to Christ. In Corinthians, in, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul connects this pattern back to Genesis, just like we did. We're following Paul's pattern. But I want you, he says, quote, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man, and neither was created Neither, excuse me, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So as these roles are occupied, Christ's love is magnified through each spouse's life and the maturing of godly masculinity and femininity in the husband and the wife will flourish. This will also affect their children, which we talked about earlier. Little boys and girls will embrace their masculinity and femininity when they see that pattern played out in their mommy and daddy at home. You see, gender confusion, all this talk about this horrific surgeries and these kinds of things, all this gender confusion in part is the result of not having this pattern displayed in their home. The giving up of these gender distinctions 
has created havoc with children. They don't know who they are. They don't know their identity. And they don't see it in their homes. They don't see it played out in the church. And they certainly don't see it played out in society. So as these roles are occupied, Christ's love is magnified. Now, let's clear up some of the confusion or perhaps address some of the, some of the arguments that we might hear. The man's spiritual headship is not to be regarded as male privilege. It isn't to be regarded as, you know, I'm, I'm home now, and he plops down in his favorite leather chair, and, you know, the family just caters to him, and he sticks his crown on, you know, and he flips through the football game. It isn't domineering dictatorship. It is to be understood as the man's appointment and equipping by God to glorify his wife. He serves her by occupying his headship instead of giving it up. His headship is for the edification and protection of his whole family. He occupies the place of spiritual authority for the sake of others. Husbands are to fulfill their headship towards their wives by loving them sacrificially. Husbands are placed in a role of spiritual headship to win and woo their wives so that their wives will reflect the spotless bride of Christ. He lays down his life for her. He washes her by the word. So this role of headship for the husband includes both physical and spiritual responsibilities, but it's not limited to, just to name a few, guarding her heart, protection, care, provision, and shepherding her in holy love. Thus, headship is not privilege. It is authority, and it is responsibility. Remember God called Adam? Adam, where art thou? Right? What, what does that mean? It means, it means that the buck stops with Adam. The buck stops with the husband. When a husband embraces his headship, he steps into his God-given role of providing, protecting, nurturing, leading, guiding. He now bears Christ's victory and not Adam's failure. The man who treasures his God-given role as redeemer in the marriage will enthusiastically occupy his position of spiritual headship. In a Christian marriage, the pursuit of the redemptive ideal is necessarily joined to progressive sanctification, right? We talked about some of the purposes for marriage, right? Redemption, and within that umbrella of redemption is sanctification. And as my own personal mentor has said, he says, quote, marriage is by God's design both a crucible and a tutor for progress and godliness. And all the husbands said, amen. <laughs> amen to that. So obedience to gender-specific commands is part and parcel of the progressive sanctification that we have as believers. The God-fearing husband who is intent upon modeling the principles that we see here in Ephesians 5 that we read will be careful not to fall into the ditch that lies on two sides, right? There's a ditch on each side to either relinquish or abuse his headship. He understands that as God's man, he is a tool in God's hands for his wife's sanctification. As such, the husband is a type of Christ. He must not break the type, 
by operating out of self-serving interests, harboring unforgiveness, or by dealing with his wife in a harsh manner. Christ's sacrificial love for his church has the goal in mind of her sanctification and her purity. Christ's purity, or excuse me, Christ's purifying love teaches us that love pursues purity in its object. Love wants only what's best for its object. The Christian husband who understands his redemptive role will see his wife's greatest earthly need as the exercise of his godly manhood on her behalf. And also a man's willingness to comprehend the magnitude of his headship will help liberate Christian marriage from the false charges of chauvinism. In that same vein, it needs to be stressed that the wife's submission is not a mindless or passive carrying out of another's wishes, right? But she is to be a helper. She is a help meet. She, there is a fittedness, right? She is co-equal. She's not inferior. She is to be a helper. And then she provides creative dynamic feedback. She offers insight and counsel to her husband. She, uh, he is a, she's a confidant for him. I know that's been true in my marriage. So when couples fulfill the marital commands of Ephesians 5, they reach the highest possible potential of harmony, intimacy, and enjoy, enjoy and, and fulfillment in this life. The fulfilled woman of Ephesians 5 is one who is cherished, she is nourished, she is provided for, and she is loved sacrificially. If the husband is to have, let's put it this way, if he has to constantly be telling his wife who the head of the house is, then he's not the head, right? Uh, the husband should exude that headship. It should be known in his loving actions and care for his bride. You see, wives are desperate for leadership and in the absence, they will be tempted to take on a role that does not glorify God if he is not the head. So it is likewise important that a wife sets her husband free to make her glorious. The wife as well as the husband must see their marriage through the lens of redemption. And when obeyed the commands of Ephesians 5 and others, they put an end to the challenging, resisting, and contesting that is so prevalent in earthly marriages. The attitudes and actions of Ephesians 5 are directed at our spouses, but ultimately they are Godward in direction. They're directed towards God. We please Christ first in order to please our spouse. So the key to effectiveness in modeling the redemptive ideal is submission to Christ first. And this is so important. If our desire is to please our spouse, if it's not grounded in this reverence to please Christ, then it's going to short circuit. Uh, it will lead to sporadic obedience. It will lead to conflict within the marriage, within the home, with the children. So Christ must be our chief evaluator. And if he's not our chief evaluator, who do you think by default thus will become our chief evaluator? Our spouse. Our spouse. For the woman, she will become a doormat or she will 
begin to take matters into our own hands. For the husband, it means passive, weak, deferring to his wife's will. So we need to join these, this great mystery to Christ, that our objective is to please him first, and it will protect him for it will protect us from our own sin natures, and it will also protect us from the sin natures of our spouses. So our submission to Christ is the source of all of our spiritual strength. We honor Christ and we enjoy fellowship with him when we live to please him by obedience to his marital commands. So, you know, we've, we've lost this robust redemptive theology and it's done a number on Christian marriages. Um, we have lost this and it's, you know, there's been a, a relentless pressure. There's been a lot of pressure coming. There's pressure from outside. There's also pressure from within. And uh, we have this lower unredeemed nature, right? It's led to passive weak. In the case of men, it's led to passive and weak and feminized men. In the case of women it's, and wives, it's led to them to distrust their husbands. It's led to them uh, trying to take matters into their own hands to protect themselves. And so we need to remember that Christ is the perfect eschatological man. He is the ideal Adam. And the church is the ultimate splendid and spotless bride. And so unity which is what Paul is addressing, right? In Ephesians 5, it's unity. It's unity in these different spheres, right? The sphere of the civil, the sphere of the church. And here, he's addressing the sphere of the family. He's very much concerned about the unity of the family. And so unity comes to full flower through re reflecting Christ and his church. So, the marriage bed is to be held in high regard, right? It's to be held in high esteem, high regard. It's to be kept holy. It is the holy of holies, as it were, of the nuclear family. And so, like guardian cherubim, the husband is to guard and protect his marriage as the nucleus of the family. That's something that husbands need to think about, right? Any decision that needs to be made, uh, whether it's a big decision or a little decision, one of the first things that we ought to be thinking about as husbands is how is this going to impact my marriage? How is this going to impact my bride? Guard the marriage, protect the marriage. Consider that adultery is one of the 10 commandments written by the finger of God as it reflects the sacredness of the eternal union between between Christ and his church. A man that commits adultery is telling the cosmos that God is unfaithful to his bride. A woman that commits adultery is telling the world that Christ is impotent to save and that the church is not Christ's spotless and redeemed bride. When a husband fails to be the head of his family, he tells the world that Christ has failed as the head of his bride. And when a wife is self-willed and insubordinate, she tells the world that the church is self-willed and insubordinate. And we could state it in the positive. When a man gives himself up for his wife, he tells the world that 
Christ has given himself up for his bride. When a wife submits to the headship of her husband, she tells the world that the church is under the authority of Christ, her head. You see, she's reflecting properly. He is reflecting properly who they are, who God has called us to be, who God has made us to be in our redeemed condition. So the recognition of these sacred distinctions means that there is to be no division. And now we're back to the Trinity. God is one, right? Yeah, he is three distinct persons. Three distinct persons in three distinct roles. No division of labor or role between a husband and his wife following the eschatological union between Christ and his bride. So marital union is to be safeguarded at all times and it is to be on the minds of marriage partners because there is no breach between Christ and his bride. So Christ guards and protects this union and so husbands, we need to be asking ourselves, how is this decision going to affect my marriage? How am I going to be safeguarding my marriage? How am I going to be protecting my bride today? And for women, how am I going to submit to my husband and set my will upon the altar unto his will? So listen to this quote. We'll end here in a in a few minutes, but listen to this quote from Gregory Beale. When problems arise in the marriage, husbands and wives need to remember that there is an ultimate redemptive historical purpose for marriage that transcends their own human relationship. As husbands unconditionally love their wives and as wives respond to this love and submission, they are actors on a redemptive historical stage performing a play before the onlooking rational universe. As husbands and wives fulfill their roles on this stage in the way God has designed, their roles are an object lesson to the watching world that Christ has left his father to love and become one with his bride, and that those who respond in faith can become a part of this corporate bride. In doing so, people will leave the sphere of the old world and enter into the new. When conflict enters the marriage relationship and division begins to occur, both partners need to remember that they have covenanted with each other before God to love each other, to remain loyal to that covenant, to strive towards unity, and to maintain the peace of the new creation of which they are a part. How beautiful. And what he's essentially saying is that the heart of Christian marriage is this new creational ethic that has the ultimate purpose of pointing to the relationship of Christ, the last Adam, and to the church, the new Eve, in the new creation. So, that said, I wanted to step off just for a second and talk about, with maybe our last five minutes, what these, what potential problems can occur when we fail to honor these gender-specific distinctions? What are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the problems? And I'll give you just a couple while we have time, but the ordo agape, ordo agape, the order of love. When we fail in meaningfully recognizing these distinctions in our marriage, 
the order of love becomes disrupted. What do I mean by that? The love of God flows through Christ to the church. Love flows from God to man, to the wife, to the children. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. So she is fit by God to receive his love through the husband. So there's, there's mystery here. The experience of the love of God is designed to flow like a channel of love, not from the wife to the husband, but from the husband to the wife. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that a woman, a, a bride of a, that has a husband, can't experience the love of God directly herself. I'm not saying that she can't read her Bible. I'm not saying that she can't pray to God. What I'm saying is that the pattern through the Scripture is that that love flows from the husband to the wife. That is the pattern. So let me give you a practical example. I had to learn this in my own marriage, that um, you know, my, my natural response as a man is to, you know, there's a problem, my wife has a particular problem, and she's not feeling loved, right? And so I want to give her 12 lessons on Christology. <laughs> there should be more men chuckling. But you know what my wife wants? She wants me to model Christ to her. That's what she wants. She, she wants to experience the love of God in me. Now, I'm not saying we don't wash our wives with the word we do, but we model it. We model it. That is how she is going to experience the love of God. So the husband is to be a pillar of truth. He is to be the conduit of love into the family. And when he does that, there is sort of a small sovereign ethos that's created in the family where the members of the family can rest in Children experience God's love through their father. So also, uh, one of the pitfalls is self-protection. If a sanctified woman is not receiving divine love from her husband, her natural response will be to safeguard her heart. It will shut up like a trap door. And this mystery is involved in why it is that husbands are told to love their wives, right? You ever notice that? Wives aren't told to love their husbands. Wives are told to what? Respect their husbands. You see? Husbands are told to love their wives. So in imitating Christ's love for the church, the husband becomes a conduit for her to experience the love of God. If she's not experiencing that love, then she's going to, to clam up. There's going to be a blockage. When the man loves his wife, her fear subsides, she feels secure, and she feels wanted. And in like manner, the woman is to honor her head. She's to show respect and honor towards her husband. So it is no secret why the biggest complaint from wives is that they're not experienced love from their husbands, and that the biggest complaint from husbands is that they're not being respected by their wives. These truths are tied to the telos of each gender, you see. So sin, sin is an obvious problem. 
when it comes to this symbiotic relationship of mutual submission to the gender-specific roles, one of the dangers to marriage is buying the lie that through disobedience, freedom will come, right? If I just, if I just disobey here, then freedom will come. And so we justify our disobedience, right? Well, he's this or well, she's that. And so we disobey these commandments and then what happens? Well, it doesn't turn out the way that we hoped it would. Why? Because rebellion from God's commandments is never a means to freedom. So the Lord will chasten married couples. He does that a number of ways, but he will chasten married couples that fail to recognize these distinctions in their own marriage. And just one quick, I know we're, we're out of time, but this is so big, especially for husbands, lack of communication. The husband, not the wife, is to be the chief communicator. I know that's shocking to us. But he is to be a student of his wife. You see, that's part of his reflecting of Christ, his head, is that he is to study his wife. He is to, he is to evaluate her. He's to study her. Where, where, what are her needs? Where is there something lacking here? Where is this a threat? Where are her fears coming from? And so both the husband and the wife can be dislodged from their redemptive roles through fear. But it's a particularly great challenge for the woman. In fact, Peter picks up on this. You remember in 1 Peter 3, 6, he says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So as the weaker vessel, the woman who is fearful will be tempted to use her physical attributes to manipulate, to manipulate, to get what she wants, which is love and security. And for the man... One of his tendencies will be to be to strong arm his wife. He will, he will try to control through his strength, through his power, through his physical prowess also, and or he will give up his headship. He will relinquish it. Both can be a result of fear. So there's much more to say, but uh, I think we'll end it there. And... Uh, why don't we pray, and you guys can be dismissed. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you made us different, that you made us men and women. You made us not just physically different or biologically different, but you made us different in our whole being. And um, help us to understand these deep, mysterious truths. Help us to connect them where there is a legitimate connection Lord, and to um, erase from our minds any, any connection that's not legitimate. But help us to meditate upon these things, to think about these things, and to let these things reflect in our lives, whether it be through our own marriages or assisting others in their marriage as we disciple the younger generation, the next generation that's coming up. And... Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be honored, you would be glorified, and that we would learn and know something more about this great salvation that we have, this great redemption. We thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.